0: And as you are resuming your seat, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 4 through 6, continuing our Lord's Supper series on the rule of the Christian life. And this is the third sermon in that series. And This morning we'll be looking at the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Give attention to God's holy word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you, O Lord, to now worship in this means of grace, preaching which you have appointed, by which you make known to us the secret things of your covenant. And so we pray, Lord, now that during this hour of preaching, You would fall upon us by the Spirit sent in the name of the Lord Jesus, that in hearing the voice of man, we would not regard it as the voice of man, but we would hear it as it is the Word of God from Your Scriptures preached. And we pray all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. John Calvin famously said, If it be inquired then by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing existence among us and maintains its truth, it will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all the other parts, and consequently the whole substance Of Christianity. That is a knowledge first of the mode in which God is duly worshiped, and secondly, the source from which salvation is found. And then he goes on to add this when these are kept out of view, the right way of worshiping God and the source from which salvation is found, when these are kept out of view, Though we may glory in the name of Christians, our profession is empty and vain. John Calvin wrote that in a work called The Necessity of Reforming the Church to Charles V in the name of all those who desire to see Christ reign. Brothers and sisters, the second commandment is a commandment about worshiping God rightly. Rightly. Of the ten words spoken on Mount Sinai, it is perhaps the most glorious. Of all the things that you can do as a Christian for the health of your soul. Of all the things that you can do to edify and build up this church. Of all the things that you can do to reform this community and this commonwealth and this country keeping the second commandment is the most critical. But most importantly, by paying heed to the second commandment is the only way to grow closer in your walk with Jesus. By paying heed to the second commandment, it is the only way that you will grow in your walk with Christ. And yet, given the glory and the grace, the importance and the practical use of this commandment, how few of us understand it, let alone keep it. How few churches are marked by a due worship of God, a reverent bowing before the King of Heaven? How many churches are marked by that? How many are known rather for entertaining the crowds? For promising you your best life now? For engaging in emotional manipulation, all the while wearing the mask of earnest piety? How many of our churches... Are known for that in their public worship services. And how quickly do we see the Christian religion falling into the abyss of irrelevance, scorn, and finally into the pit of complete removal from these shores? How quickly do we see this happening before our very eyes? And thus, the words of Calvin prove true. The way that Christianity maintains its existence and maintains its truth in any society is through the due worship of God. The Christian religion cannot stand where the right way of worshiping God is neglected. But that's not only so. How much have our own souls been corrupted by these examples? St. Paul said that evil company corrupts good manners. Bad public examples in the Christian churches corrupts true worship, even in our own souls. How much has our own flesh turned the second commandment into an occasion not for our own growth, or the growth of our brothers and sisters, but into an occasion for conflict and debate, for strife and accusation. How often has the second commandment been the occasion for brother to go at war with brother? How often, as soon as the second commandment comes up, does bitter envy and strife, earthly, sensual, and dare I say it, Demonic wisdom has shown itself. That comes from James chapter 3. And thus not only is the public face of our dear religion by which we are saved degraded when worshiping God is rightly neglected, but our own souls are robbed of the chief privilege of the gospel age. Offering acceptable worship to the Father. Not knowing or caring about right worship, either we, we simply are ignorant that this is essential to our souls, or we simply don't care that there's only one right way to worship God. Not knowing or caring about worship, we wander like sheep astray in the desert, bleating after our shepherd. Not knowing where we can find him. Because the right way of worshiping God has been buried through bad example and fleshly wisdom. We have need, brothers and sisters. We have great need. We, I include myself, of humility and repentance. Before we can even approach this commandment, Because where our flesh is still active, where sins are still nurtured in the heart, we cannot hear the words of God. And so we have great need of humility before we approach this commandment. To the degree that we think we stand in keeping the second commandment, to that degree, this sermon will be your downfall. If you think you are keeping the second commandment rightly, right now, this sermon may well prove your downfall. To the degree, however, that you humble and abhor yourself for your transgressions of the second commandment, for your neglect of the second commandment, this sermon will be the occasion of your rising from the dead. Brothers and sisters, I realize this tone in my introduction is very different than my normal introductions. But I want it to be impressed upon your minds and hearts. God does not take this commandment lightly. And for the good of your souls, I cannot take it lightly either as I serve in his name. After repentance... There are two principles that we need to keep in mind as we interpret this commandment. The first, well, they are the internal principle and the inclusion principle. Let me explain what those mean. Internal means that the commandment has reference not only to your outward acts, but it has reference to your internal state of soul, to your mind, will, and affections. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, that the law is spiritual. It reaches into the heart. It's not only concerned about outward forms of worship. It's concerned about the heart of worship. Inclusion means that whatever is expressed in the commandment, the opposite is included. Is there a sin forbidden in the commandment? The contrary virtue is therefore commanded is something commanded, like the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is something commanded in a commandment, well, then the opposite vice is included in that command. This is standard Reformed interpretation of the Ten Commandments. You see an example of this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Paul says, Let him who stole steal no more, but work with his hands honestly. You see, the command says, thou shalt not steal. The opposite virtue is commanded. Work hard and provide for your own money. Now, brothers and sisters, with these principles in mind and a humbled and repentant soul, we are ready to heed this commandment. The second commandment requires, this is what we're going to learn, the second commandment requires worshiping God only. In the way that he has appointed in his word. The second commandment requires worshiping God only in the way that he has appointed in his word. We're gonna see two things. There's gonna be three parts to the sermon, but there's two things in the text we're gonna note the command itself, verse 4 through verse 5a, and then the reason. 5b through verse 6. And then finally, there'll be a conclusion. So we have the command, the reason, and a conclusion. As we begin looking at this command, you'll notice that it's in the negative. Thou shalt not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. Now, an interesting thing to note about a difference between us and the Roman Catholics, Roman Catholics divide this commandment, they divide the first commandment and the second commandment at verse 5. So a Roman Catholic would say that verse 3 and 4 are the first commandment. And they read it as, have no other gods and make no idols of that god. The Reformed, and I think rightly recognize that verse 4 is where the second commandment begins and verse 5 is a part of the second commandment. Now you can understand why they do this. Roman Catholics love images of Mary and the saints. They love images of Jesus and they worship by means of those images. Well, if they leave the commandment together the way that the reformed do, that totally excludes what they do. So the commandment is negative. It says, thou shalt not make a carved image. This is the common Hebrew word for an idol, the the word that's used here. Likeness refers to any other visual representation. So don't make statues and don't paint pictures. Don't make wooden paperweights and don't make movies. Don't make anything that visually represents. Now, here's the question. This is often where a lot of confusion enters in about this commandment. Is God prohibiting all visual art? No, he is not. Because you remember in the tabernacle, Moses is commanded to make uh, uh, tapestries and carved figures of angels all over the place. The inside of Solomon's temple was dripping with angelic imagery, and God commanded that. God does not contradict himself, and so what we must say here is he's not forbidding all visual imagery. He is forbidding visual representations of the deity, meaning God himself, or any of the three persons of the Trinity who are fully divine. You see an instance of this in Exodus 32. Turn to Exodus 32. This is the famous golden calf incident. Sometimes this incident is misinterpreted in my opinion in that Aaron makes this golden calf and what he was doing was creating an image of an Egyptian god. But I think what you're going to see here is that Aaron's sin and the sin of the people is not that they made an Egyptian god but they made a visual image attempting to represent Jehovah and they worshipped by means of that image. Pay careful attention to the passage. Thirty-two, one. the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. The people gathered together to Aaron and said, come, make us gods. Now, your version might have that in the plural, gods. The Hebrew word there is Elohim, a very common word for God. It can be used for the false gods of the nations, or it can be used for the one true God of the covenant. The plural of that word by itself doesn't tell you very much except that they wanted a religious image. Notice also that Moses has been taken away from their sight. Moses is on top of the mountain, the people are at the bottom, and they're getting impatient. It's hard to walk by faith. And the Israelites desired something to see. Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron instructs them, give me me all the gold earrings and all the jewelry that you have. They they gave it to Aaron. Aaron puts it in the furnace. He fashions it into a molded calf. Now notice what he says at the end of verse 4. This is your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The title of the one who delivered us from Egypt belongs exclusively to Jehovah. And so Aaron is making this calf to represent Jehovah. But there's more. Keep reading. Verse 5, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Now we're worshiping. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Jehovah. So you see, the sin that Aaron is guilty of is not that they're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping the true God falsely. They're worshiping the true God in a way that he had not commanded in his word. As I said, this is a good takeaway line, I think, to write down. The prohibition of this commandment is not to avoid having false gods. That's number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The prohibition of this commandment is to avoid worshiping the true God falsely. That is, in a manner that he has not appointed in his word. Now, we know this from verse 5 of Exodus 20. You see, in verse 5, he says, Don't make these images, and don't bow down to them, nor serve them. These two words are the most common words in the Hebrew Scriptures for worship. Psalm 5-7, David is praying in the midst of uh, his, his journey, uh, journey through life, that is. And he says, as for me, I will bow down in your holy temple. Psalm 100, verse 2, it says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Same words that we have here in verse 5. To bow down and to serve is to worship something as divine. And so the Lord says, thou shalt not bow down nor serve these idols. That's the negative. I mentioned earlier the principle of inclusion. Well, if God has forbidden this, what is it we are actually to do? We understand that this commandment requires us to worship only in the way he has appointed in his word. Only what he has commanded for his worship are we permitted to do. As an illustration of this, I won't, I won't turn you there this morning, but in Leviticus 10, I believe it is, it's a story of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu have just been ordained priests in the newly erected tabernacle, and they come before the Lord's presence with strange fire, meaning incense that God had not commanded. They came up with their own incense, and the Lord struck them dead on the spot because they offered what God had not commanded. This is where the Reformed Regulative Principle of Worship comes from. If you've never heard of that, the the Regulative Principle of Worship is often referred to as the RPW. And what the Regulative Principle of Worship means, that which God reveals for His worship is alone to be done in His worship. That's the Reformed perspective on Christian worship. I, as a Reformed minister, believe this is thoroughly biblical based on some of the brief arguments I've already given. This is also why in the better Reformed churches, you you experience worship that is not very common in America today. Most American churches operate on what I call, well, it's not just me, I didn't come up with this, the normative principle of worship. The normative principle simply means that if God hasn't said no then it's okay. If God hasn't forbidden dancing in New Testament worship, it is okay. There are churches that are a part of Reformed denominations who have done this. If God hasn't forbidden it, then it's okay for us to do it. And finally, there's, there's probably the most common principle of worship that you'll see in America. This one is original, so it's probably not as good. It's called the non-principle of worship. And what that essentially means is whatever a human imagination deems fitting for God's worship is allowed. Whatever we want to do, we can do it. We can have light shows, rock bands, we can have Coke and Ritz for the Lord's Supper. We can do whatever we want because it's sincere, authentic, and it makes us feel good. That's most Christian worship that you see in the world, and especially in America today. I want to apply this idea very briefly, especially on that non-principle of worship. The reason that has gained so much traction in our world today is because the modern world is built on the notion that true worship, something that is acceptable to God, only has to be sincere and authentic. As long as you are sincere and authentic, it is acceptable in God's sight. Most people live their relationship to Christ with that understanding. As long as I'm sincere, it's acceptable. That is a woefully deficient view of our relationship with Jehovah, especially when it comes to worship. You remember that King Saul, before his battle, The priest was delaying. And Saul said, i got to offer this sacrifice or else the people are going to depart from me. And Saul was rebuked by Samuel, saying, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Saul had all the best intentions. He was authentically wanting to worship God. He thought this would be acceptable because I sincerely want Jehovah's blessing. And he lost the kingdom because he transgressed a principle of worship. Well, what is the the heart of worship then. I I said that we not only have to understand the the positive virtue, what is God actually telling us to do, we also have to understand what is this teaching our hearts? What does this mean for me personally when God says, worship me according to the way I've appointed? Westminster Confession 21, paragraph 2, it's the chapter on religious worship, says this, Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone. Not to angels or saints or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any, but Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, the heart of the second commandment is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that we have Christ's mediation is because he is the appointed sacrifice by which we worship the Father. We cannot pray, we cannot sing, we cannot render anything to God unless it comes to him through the appointed sacrifice. And the blood of Christ is the only approved sacrifice by which we can worship the Lord. This is what's going on in John chapter 4. You remember that famous interview with the Samaritan woman at the well? Christ begins speaking to her about her sins, and she starts thinking about worship. Because you see, our sins cut us off from worship. And she recognizes, if I'm in my sins, I can't worship. How do I worship? And then Christ teaches her, you worship God in spirit and in truth. Likewise, in the book of Ephesians, the the whole book of Ephesians is glorious, but Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 Paul writes and says, through the blood of the cross, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. He says further in chapter 3, verses 12 through 21, that it's Paul's privilege to preach the glorious mystery of Christ by which we have access into God's presence. Brothers and sisters, understand, worship is entering God's presence, spiritually, really, by faith. That's what worship is. And you can enter by no other way except the Lord Jesus Christ. The second commandment, if I can put it this way, is a gospel commandment. We can therefore say, the first step to keeping the second commandment is to believe the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing all of us have to do to keep the second commandment is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. How often do we forget this, brothers and sisters? How often, even among us, the Reformed, who can define the regulative principle of worship, Who can give you all the biblical arguments for why God's worship must be according to what he has only appointed. And we enter worship forgetting the first lesson. None of us are worthy. None of us are able. None of us have been granted this privilege because we know the RPW. We are only granted this privilege because of the death of the Son of God. And we must enter into worship with a heart of faith in him if we do not our worship is not accepted our prayers bounce off the ceiling and fall again on our heads how often do we forget this let me let me encourage you as the lord has encouraged my heart through preparing this and meditating on this humble yourselves before the lord Adopt the attitude of Job. I heard about you with the ear, but now my eye sees you and I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the only thing we bring to worship. God provides the rest through his son. The second thing we can say about keeping the second commandment, and I think the thing that is required of us today, when I say us, I mean our congregation. I mean you in your personal walk with Christ. The one thing needful for all of us in keeping the second commandment is private prayer. You ever think about it that way? We we often read the second commandment or think about the second commandment and think it's it has to do with public worship. And we think about the outward commands of what we do outwardly in public worship. It does have reference to that. But fundamentally and primarily, the second commandment also has reference to your prayer life. And specifically your private prayer life. Brothers and sisters, let me let me just encourage you with this. Westminster Confession 21, chapter 21, says that prayer is a special act of worship. Prayer is not where we bring our laundry list to God. Prayer is where we worship God. Prayer is so essential to what Christians do in worship that in the ancient church and probably in the book of Acts, where you see that the disciples are gathered and they are, one of the only terms that's used to describe their gathering is that they're praying. It's another way of saying that they're worshiping. They talk about the prayers of the church and, and all of these different kind of Uh, services that are called prayer because prayer is essential to what we do in worship. And so to keep the second commandment, you must be in private prayer. Christ says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, when you pray, go into your closet and shut the door and pray in secret. Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm pressing you on this because I want you to grow in your faith. Christ commands you to pray in secret. That's not an option. He's not suggesting it as a good way to live. He's saying, when you pray, pray in secret. Go to your Father in prayer and shut the door. And how few among us keep the second commandment in that light? How few of us pray secretly? You know, the older writers, the better writers in, in our tradition, 17th and 18th century Scotsmen, the, the Puritan writers, all of them talk and say, secret prayer is the heart of Christian religion. If you don't have secret prayer, you may not have Christ. Because the heart of the Christian in light of the love that Christ has shown us Even as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he's given us the spirit of adoption. What does the spirit of adoption do? It causes us to cry out, Abba Father. That's private prayer, that's secret prayer. How many of us don't keep this commandment? How many of us choose the distractions of this world? How many of us choose to, to, to vacate our thoughts by going to entertainment, by going to vanity? How many of us in our private, quiet moments choose perhaps not an innocent or uh, indifferent distraction, but we choose positive sin? We choose those secret things we would, we would be ashamed to admit in public instead of praying secretly to our Father in heaven. How many of us do not keep this commandment? Brothers and sisters, as I love your souls, hear me now. The thing you need to do in your life right now is pray secretly to your Father. You don't need more books. You don't need a change of circumstance. You need to go to your Father in heaven and say, Abba, Father, save me. And as Christ promised, your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The Lord not only gives us this command, He also gives us reasons for this command. The reason is really... Um, our relationship to God. The, The reason this command is given to us is because of our covenantal relationship to God. First, our relationship to Him. Notice what it says in verse 5b. I, the Lord your God, because of the position that you stand in relation to God, you must keep this commandment by faith in Christ. He is sovereign over us, He is the Lord, and he has also purchased us. I am the Lord, your God. I am the sovereign, the almighty. I have the breath of every living in my hand. I created all things by the word of my power out of nothing in the space of six days. I am the Lord, and through my act of redemption, I have purchased you to be my own. Even as it says in the book of Ezekiel, when he describes God's relationship to Israel, he says, when you were struggling in your blood and nobody had mercy on you, I walked by the way and said, live. I chose you and brought you out of the blood. I washed you and adorned you with jewels and all the blessings of my covenant. I am your God. Brothers and sisters, God loves his people. That's why Jesus died. And that's why we keep this commandment, because he is our God. But it's not only our relationship to him, it's God's relationship to us. And as, as I alluded to in that reference to Ezekiel, you know the rest of that passage? God is presented there as the jealous husband. The book of Hosea, as well, Jehovah presents himself through the words of the prophet as a jealous husband. We find that word here in this passage, verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This term is very shocking to modern sensibilities. In fact, one no less uh, notable than Oprah Winfrey said that because of this attribute, she could not handle the God of the Bible. She said, I don't want a God that's jealous. This this is too much for me. This is very shocking to modern sensibilities because our idea of God, it's not uh, the idea that the Bible presents most of the time. This describes God's attitude towards false worship. And throughout the scriptures, it can be either worshiping other gods like Baal, or it can be worshiping him Falsely. He's jealous over his people. The term is closely connected to God's character in Ezekiel. I'm sorry, Exodus 34, 14. This term is so closely connected to God's character that it says, I, the Lord your God, whose name is jealous, forbid you to worship idols. This term expresses the response. To a promised and exclusive love given to somebody else. This term expresses the response of a husband who has covenanted with his wife and they have both made vows and promises, you and no other. And then that wife gives her love to someone else. That's what this word expresses. This is the opposite of God's love. This is the I shouldn't say the opposite. This is the what we would expect if God loves something and that something doesn't return that love, he becomes jealous. As I mentioned Hosea, 2 Corinthians 11:2, Paul says, "I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have betrothed you to one husband even Christ that I might present you as a chaste, pure virgin." So Paul picks up on this idea. Jealousy, husband, covenant of marriage. One very important thing to notice about this jealousy in reference to worship, this is one of the primary ways that Jesus proves his divinity. You remember in all four gospel accounts, Christ cleanses the temple. He goes in and turns over the tables and drives out the money changers. And then it says in the Gospel of John, zeal, which in Hebrew, zeal and jealousy are, are very, I think they're almost the same word. It's the same idea. It says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And he says in the Synoptic Gospels that you've turned my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. And so the one time that Christ shows what we might call anger, He's actually showing his divinity in light of the second commandment. Jesus, who is God, is jealous over the worship of his people. We need to take this very seriously. Because when we worship God falsely, or we neglect to worship him in the ways that he's commanded, privately, in families, and publicly... It provokes him to jealousy. It provokes the eyes of our husband to look jealously upon us. It provokes his love which he has given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and said, you are mine. Exclusively. I will give all of my blessings to you. And when we put our faith in Christ, we promise to give all of our service to him. That promise is going to be renewed in the Lord's table. When we partake of the Lord's table, we are promising, Lord, I have sinned, forgive me, I repent, I promise to serve you and worship you alone in the future. This now explains why this threat comes out. Because he is a jealous God, this threat of a curse comes out in this passage. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Two things to notice. I know that we're getting on in a little bit in this sermon, but bear with me. The threat of the curse, notice, brothers and sisters, your personal piety affects your households. Your personal piety has an effect on your households. Imputing the sin of the father to the children, to the third and fourth generation. Notice also how God regards those who disregard his commandments. He imputes these sins to those who hate him. That's how God regards a disregard of his commandments. It's hatred for God himself. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that in our generation... Preaching the law of God and enforcing the law of God upon Christians is not a popular way to grow in the Christian life. But I want to paint it for you this way. You and I do not know what God is like. You and I cannot imagine the glory of the Creator. We have no idea what He is like. But in His commandments... And in the way that he is to be worshipped, he has revealed to us, this is what pleases me. This is what I delight in. This is what I rejoice in. When you call upon me in the prayer closet, I love that. And I will bless you because you love me and keep my commandments. That's the second part of the reason. Notice what he says in verse 6. But showing Mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice, first off, this is a gospel promise. He doesn't say He'll give you justice, He doesn't say He gives you your reward. He says He'll give you mercy. He will be merciful to you, He will give you what you don't deserve. This word mercy is chesed, God's covenant mercy, very important word in the Old Testament. In this context and in most other contexts, chesed means his promised love, care, and forgiveness. And those who love the Lord and walk in the way of his commandments, God promises, I will wipe away all of your sins. Now be careful. This is not works righteousness. God is not saying that if you obey my commandments, you've earned your forgiveness. He's saying that if you walk in the way of my commandments, you are proving yourself to be a true Christian. You are proving yourself to truly love God. Did not Christ say, if you love me, keep my commandments? That's exactly what Jehovah is saying here. If you love me, Keep this commandment. Notice also, walking in God's commandments sincerely with love to Jehovah for the love that he's given to us, though not sinless, though not perfect, though stumbling and falling and failing a thousand times over, sincere desire to serve Jehovah procures a blessing for a thousand generations. Notice the curse, it says to the fourth and fifth generation, or sorry, third and fourth generation. This one now says to thousands. Well, it must mean generations because that's the context. And so to a thousand generations, beyond what you deserve, beyond what you can earn, beyond what you are able to do in yourself, God, because of his covenant mercy, will bless you and your offspring after you all the way until Christ returns. The thousand here, in a lot of times in the Old Testament, it just means a very, very long time. It's not meant to be taken literally, I don't think. I think it's meant to say for all history. Brothers and sisters, as Christ told us in John chapter 4, the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, listen carefully. The Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit and in truth is to humble ourselves before the awesome majesty of the Father. Drawing near to him through the merits of Christ alone, by faith wrought by the power of the Spirit alone. That's what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. In all the aspects of worship that God commands, public, family, and privately, in your prayer closet. This is what it means to keep the second commandment. And I dare say, based on God's promises in this commandment, If you pray privately, if you diligently seek the face of the Lord, you will see such a revival in your personal life. You will see such a flowering of grace from heaven in our communities. You will see a reformation in this country now if you would but, as God said, my people who are called by my name. If they would seek my face, I would return and heal their land. Pray to God privately. Keep the second commandment. If you refuse, you will be cursed. God does not take his worship lightly. But if you love the Lord because he has loved you first. If you love Jehovah and go to him in your prayer closet and reaffirm your love to him in private prayer, you will be blessed. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your commandments, which are true and righteous and good all together. We confess that your commandment is spiritual, but we are carnal, sold in sin. We ask you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, you would deliver us from the body of this death and cause us to walk evermore mortifying the deeds of the body and living life in the spirit praying to you without ceasing lifting up all of our cares to you and worshiping you in spirit and in truth in public, in our families daily and in private we pray all of this for Jesus sake Amen